good morning. I hope you're doing well. Uh, man, so excited about uh, everything going on. I do know that there's a competition uh, amongst the staff related to the best booth next for the next couple weeks for the uh, expo. So um, I know there's some kind of incentive. I don't know what it is, but I've heard rumors of what they have planned. So I think next Sunday is going to be pretty significant. So I hope you all can all be part of that. Welcome those in the auditorium, those in overflow this morning, uh, those uh, at Mount Moriah, Pleasant View, and Pelzer, all those folks, and of course, worshiping online. So let's have a word of prayer. We'll unite all our hearts. Lord, thank you so much for this incredible body of believers. Thank you for this beautiful group of people. And we pray, Father, the next few moments that you would speak directly to whatever situation we find ourselves in. And as a result of us hearing a word from you, we would be so clear that you're real and you're interested and active in our lives. And we, we are just so excited to, to be part of that. So we love you, Lord, in your name. Amen. So, so here's a question I would ask. How many of you grew up in a home that like you would mark the growth in like in a, on a wall, like with a ruler and a marker? Can you just see your hands that you all did that? How many of you are doing that for your grandkids right now? Maybe something like that. And how many of you had parents that didn't remember? You know, that was me. I didn't remember to grow. And then, uh, so we all have these things. We kind of mark the growth. And, and then um, as, as, as kids get older, like the teenagers, like Thomas right now, he'll come up and he'll try to stand next to me to see if he's taller than I am yet or, or bigger than I am yet. And, and, and that's, that's good. And then, of course, if you're my age, we are also marking growth using like a scales and, um, and like a pant size, you know, so we're still mar marking growth. And so we all have these ways we, uh, we are tracking our physical growth. And all that sort of leads to the question I want to talk about this morning. How do, how, how do we know if we're growing as believers, I mean, what determines that? How, how can we say confidently, yeah, yeah, I'm growing as a believer? Or another way to ask it, am I really growing in Christ? Am I really doing that? Is that something that's happening? Or is it just something I sense or feel, but real, no concrete evidence of the idea? Am I becoming more like Jesus in my relationships, my identity, and how I see the world, my calling? Am I becoming more like Jesus? Because it seems to me that it would be prudent for those of us who call ourselves believers, whether we're brand new to it or whether we've been in this for a while, to sort of have, I don't know, like, like a growth plan at the minimum. We, we ought to have some awareness of, of seasons of growth. And so I was thinking back to time in my life and times in my life when I was really growing spiritually. And it seemed like times when I was really growing spiritually, you know, what produced those, gro that, those seasons of growth Every once in a while was the sweetness of God's presence and resting in the grace of his presence. But most of the time, when I was like warp speed kind of spiritual growth, it was through some kind of trial or some kind of crisis. Those were the times when I was like, wow, I am, I am actually, I'm like on a rocket ship in spiritual growth. Every time you get in the morning, you open your Bible, and the verse is like, oh, wow, that's just for me. Or you come to church, and like, oh, that message was just for me, or this song, just for me. And, and, and I mean, you know, you get up in the middle of the night, and you're reading through something, and the first paragraph you read is like, oh, that was just for me. These are the times we think God is really, really doing something in us. So there's a book called Fault Lines written by Steve Deneff. And in that book, he, he kind of has these observations about when we are growing spiritually. Here's his first one. Spiritual growth for most people doesn't occur on a steady incline, but more in this series of, 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 of spurts or growth spurts. Kind of like when you have a kid and, you know, he's got like a size seven shoe and then he wakes up and it's 14. You know, like they, they just hit this spurt and all of a sudden they're just devouring everything that's not nailed down in the house and, and they're growing. They're in this growth spurt. Well, that also happens spiritually. 
we grow spiritually like we do physically through a series of growth spurts. There are seasons when we grow a lot, and then there are seasons where we don't seem to grow at all. It just kind of is, a, is in this mode where not a whole lot of new ground being, being taken. And, and while all this is going on, Deneff writes in his observation, one thing that they've discovered is that there's little correlation with how many times a person's attended church or how many times a person has had daily devotions. These things may have supported spiritual growth and helped prepare them, but they really weren't the trigger themselves. Here's another observation he makes about spiritual growth. For most people, growth does not come from what we planned, but from managing events and circumstances that we actually didn't plan. Things happen to us. We get punched. In other words, we don't grow from spiritually from things that we make happen, but more from things that happen to us. And it's our responses to events, crisis, trials that causes us to grow or not grow. Um, author, professor, his, uh, pastor Keith Drury write, summarizes it this way. He says, a lot of spiritual formation is a discipline of response. That is, life comes at a person, and when it comes, our responses can be one way or another. Spiritual growth occurs when people are equipped in character to respond rightly to these things that come at them. Third observation about spiritual growth. People grow more under harsh conditions than under normal conditions. <laughs> if you and I had time to sit down and have a cup of coffee together or something, and we started sharing our spiritual journeys, probably if we could get to it, we would say, you know, during this season of my life, I really, really grew. And the most common response would be remembering that, that time of growth and also remembering absolutely hating what was going on during that time of growth. And this explains why many Christians, perhaps a good many in the modern church, don't grow. We don't grow. In fact, now we have people who would say they've been following Jesus for 30 years, but really they've had this same year over and over and over because they've never grown. They're the same today spiritually as they were 10 years ago. They're the same today spiritually as they were a year ago. Nothing's changed. They've just had one experience 30 different times. They never grow because they never change. And the older we get, the more resistance to change we become. By nature, by nature, everybody in the room, everybody worshiping online, we're all adverse to pain. We're allergic to it. We don't like it. So we instinctively try to avoid it by hiding, running, or whatever. I'll give you an example. Peter was... Uh, Peter was enraged when Jesus said that he's going to have to go through a time of trial. He said, I'm going to get, suffer and I'm going to die. And Peter says, no, you're not. And he got upset. He got, I mean, instinctive, like defensive. No, you're not. Not on my watch. Look how Jesus responded to that. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You're, not, you're a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the things of God. You've got in mind the things that are best for men, the things that you're thinking about. People grow under harsh conditions and under normal, and more so than under normal conditions. One last observation. Most people grow not from information, but from interpretation. I'll tell you what I mean. When people grow and when people do not, isn't how much new information they're getting, how much new information they're acquiring. Most bad decisions are made not because...
Now, if you agree with some or all of these observations, it may mean that what we're discovering is we are focusing on the wrong tools for spiritual growth in church world. We have more sermons and discipleship tools available to us right now in this moment than ever before in history. And it's convenient. You don't even have to go anywhere. You can listen to me preach an adequate sermon, and at the same time, you can listen to someone online preach an amazing sermon. You have that option right now. You can go to YouTube, and you can learn this is how you study Scripture. These are all at our fingertips, sermons and small groups and prayers that seek to remove the trial or avoid the trial is what the whole thing seems to be geared on, and that's the thing. It seems like we're all about having to make ourselves slicker and prettier and more strong in the face of life. And they're all seeking to remove a trial or avoid a trial. And what we're discovering is removing people from a trial is not as effective at spiritual growth as helping people in their trial. Too much of our discipleship and spiritual growth is superficial. We're focusing on our behavior modification stuff. Oh, look like this, act like this, do this, don't do this. And it affects the surface stuff, what everybody sees. But it neglects the deeper stuff that truly transforms who a person is. Now, if I've lost you through those four observations and that fire hydrant kind of introduction, here's where I'm at in summary. I think we've accepted a walk with Jesus that makes us nicer but not new, forgiven but not innocent. We're polishing ourselves up really, really good. and We're looking really, really clean. But inside, nothing has changed. It's actually getting darker. Why is that happening? Why, with all that's available to us, have we actually failed to make better disciples? Why is that going on? Most of our discipleship that's focused on this behavioral changes and not about the deep intimacy with Jesus that makes these changes possible. In other words, we've learned the dance. We don't really have any relationship that provides the rhythm. We just look a certain way, but nothing's changed. I wonder if maybe it's because we've taken the teaching of holiness in Scripture the absolute non-negotiable call of Scripture to be like Jesus, and we've neglected it. Now, our small groups this week or this year in the fall, we're doing a Keith Drury's Holiness for Ordinary People. At least a lot of a lot of a lot of the small groups are. It's one of our featured books. And that same book, here's a quote from it. I, I've read it years ago, and and Justine gave me a copy of it this week. Holiness is loving God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving my neighbor as myself. I don't know what comes up into your brain when you hear the word holiness. For me, it had a negative connotation for a long, long time. But when we're talking about holiness, this is what we're talking about. So, 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 so dial in. Simply put, holiness is Christ-likeness. Likeness. Holiness, holiness is not an it, as in, have you got it? It's him I need. In him, I find purity, power, and obedience. Jesus Christ himself is the definition of holiness and its living example. What if we've lost that? What if we've lost the idea that we can become like Jesus at the core of who we are? In his book called To Be Holy, uh, Professor John Oswalt states in his opinion, 
the fate of the Christian church around the world depends upon what the church does with this idea of becoming like Jesus, of holiness. He writes, unless Christians are truly transformed into the character of God, the whole purpose of the church's existence becomes blurred. Question, anybody else seeing that in our society right now? Anybody else seeing that the whole purpose of church, capital C, is becoming blurred? And confused, and a church without the character of God actually lacks the power of God. This discipleship is this process of aligning our real life to the incredibly outrageous, seemingly unbelievable claims of the gospel. And coming to see that in the end, this life that scripture speaks about is the only life worth having. Discipleship is learning to live on earth in a way that is common sense to everybody in heaven. It's asking at all times, what is God doing? How can I join him? We have neglected and lost the teachings of scripture because we didn't know what to do with them. They were so outlandish. We were so far removed from them, we couldn't even believe them, so we don't talk about them. Let me, let me show you one. Here's Paul in 1 Corinthians. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have. We have the mind of Christ. Really? We can have it? Here's another one. This is Peter, totally different guy. Through these, he has given us his great and precious promises so that through them, you may participate. He wasn't talking to a, a, a specific group. He was talking to the church. You actually may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. Please don't miss this because you're probably, it's hard to swallow. <laughs> what we've learned so far is you can have the mind of Christ and you can participate in Christ's very nature. And then Hebrews says this, our father disciplined us for a little while as he thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. This isn't just for a select group. This is how the New Testament describes believers. Mind of Christ, participants in the divine nature, Share into the holiness of Christ, holiness of God. And that kind of change, that kind of spiritual growth requires change at the core of my being because none of that's going to happen without some help from me. Not just something simple in my behavior. You know what I've discovered? I can act like Jesus most of the time without Jesus. I mean, if Jesus is all about being good, I can be a pretty good person. If Jesus is all about me treating you nicely, most of the time I can treat you nicely. If Jesus is all about being like an ethical person, I've got good ethics. Don't need Jesus for any of that. I can be that. But what the thing is I want different in me is I don't think acting like Jesus is the thing. I want to react like Jesus. I want to see the world like Jesus. I want to view myself like Jesus sees me in good times and bad. I want to relate with others like Jesus. 
I want the mind of Christ. I want the very nature. I want to share in his holiness. And if I'm going to have any of those things, well, they're going to require Jesus. (laughs) The struggle I think we may be feeling is many of us have stopped believing that God actually can change the nature of a thing. If I pushed you on your faith, do you think God can actually change something? See, the modern church no longer believes God can change water into wine or make a stormy sea calm. We've actually stopped believing in miracles and started accepting that most of what Jesus can actually change actually takes place on the, on the surface. It puts lipstick on a pig, if you will. Jesus makes us nicer but not new, forgiven but not innocent. See, I fear this gospel we've all embraced is devoid of miracle or mystery in our modern times. And we default to a philosophy or way of thinking that is actually undermining spiritual growth in our lives. And so, okay, so I was writing and, you know, this comes at you hard and fast and I get all that. So I just took a break. I need a break, so I'm going to give you a break. So I'll give you a break. And I wrote down some questions. You all can answer the questions for yourself. Do I believe God could still raise the dead? You got to do honest. You know, you're like, yeah, maybe. Or maybe that's just something that was good for the Bible and helped sell the book. Do I think God can actually calm a storm? Do I think God can turn water into wine? Not do I wish. Do I think God... Why does it matter, Tom? Because the next two questions. Do I think God can still change me? Do I think God can change my situation? What if we've lost the mystery of God? What if we no longer believe in the miraculous of God? Because if we let that go, then that means he can't change me either. And really this whole thing is about behavior modification. Maybe, maybe we need to change everything when it comes to how we grow spiritually. I'll show it to you in the life of Jesus. Uh, One day, Jesus is going through his routine. His disciples come up to him and they basically say something that seems sort of innocent, but it's not innocent at all. It's a significant moment. The disciples say, hey, there's some people here that are Greek and they're here to see you. And in that moment, Jesus has a freak out moment. In that moment, things change. If you will, Jesus' heart skipped a beat. This is a moment that you and I can relate to because, you know, we've had the diagnosis. The doctor came in and said something and you're like, oh, this changes everything. Uh, The relationship is in for a dramatic change. Oh, this changes everything. The the grief has overwhelmed us. We no longer have our, oh, this changes everything. This is the moment Jesus is having right now in the passage. It's a heart-stopping moment for Jesus. It's zero hour, and after this, everything would be different, and Jesus knew it. Once he got over the shock of, of hearing these people were there, he said, the hour has come. Look, look, look at his response. Now the hour has come. My heart is troubled. 
and what should I say? Troubled means to shake something, literal. Throw it into confusion, to disturb, to upset, to confound, or to agitate. This is Jesus, the Son of God. And his heart is in full freakout mode. It's what we might call even if you've ever had a panic attack before. It, it would be like that. It was fear-producing, anxious thought-producing. And I believe Jesus' inner world was thrown into chaos. One translator said that, or translated it this way, right now my life is so deeply depressed. So we all get it. We all understand and can relate to this part. The passage goes on. Now my heart is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. In other words, stop it. The bad things that are going on, stop it. Take it away. Jesus is saying, is that what I should say? He answers his own question. No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Instead, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Every trial or crisis in this life, when we feel punched, usually produces trouble in our souls. And the question we all answer is how are we going to respond? Or quoting Jesus, what should I say? What should I do? What is my next step? There are two possible responses, and you see them in Jesus' words when we get punched in the mouth in moments like these. There's one that is a culture of control. This is one we're all familiar with. Father, save me from this hour. Lord, remove the trial. Remove the circumstance. Remove the situation. Heal it. Restore it. Whatever it is, remove it. Or there's this culture of trust. Father, glorify your name. Now, this believer always defaults to the culture of control. Unless we can know Jesus so intimately that we can default to trusting him. We're not going to default to trust for someone who washes the outside. We're only going to default to trust to someone who's changed the inside. If we choose one way, we try to act as all is normal. We want to get back to our normal as quick as we can, the culture of control. Normal is what we all prefer because it's predictable. We're the ones in control. Getting back to normal is a good thing unless what we're trying to get back to wasn't a good thing in the first place. It was just familiar. What if who we were before the crisis was actually pretty jacked up, spiritually lost or spiritually broken? What if our normal was never healthy? It was just familiar. See, we are born with these instincts to survive. So when seasons out of con our control come, we, we, we go into motion. We fix them and block them and explain them and blame them and run away from them. It's all about control. If I can blame you or blame that circumstance or blame that situation for my crisis, then I can finally get back to my normal. And when we do so, 
We actually aren't growing spiritually. We're just getting back to what we know. The same year lived out 30 different years in a row. The culture of trust, what we're going to be exploring in this series is so different. Because when we trust God, we improvise and adapt and rest and hold our plans loosely. And it's so difficult because in every area of our lives, we try not to do that. We fall into the arms of Jesus because we're actually at our end and there is no option. I don't, I don't know if you all have had this experience. I'll give you an illustration. But um, I remember uh, one particular year, Sarah, our, our middle child, uh, we have all three kids are healthy and we're very thankful. But this particular year, she had something going on and we couldn't figure out what it was. Test after test and all these trips to the hospitals, and you all know how much I love that. You know, I mean, I don't know if she got any better, but I got, I got more sick as the year went on. But all these hospital visits, and I mean, just couldn't figure it out. We couldn't, couldn't figure it out. And, um, I, and so that, that the church was kind of small at that time, and we had a smaller staff. And, and I remember sitting in this circle with our staff. And during that time, we would share things we learned about God in the previous year, things God had taught us. And I remember Lisa and I sharing, even though we didn't have answers in the moment, but what a wonderful surprise it was to have a thing that tested our faith and to step out into it and and realize God stands. To realize the foundation didn't move. He didn't shift at all. But in the times when we were totally broken with nothing in our control, at total loss, to step onto a faith in Christ and realize, wow, that's the most solid thing I've ever put my trust in before. Have you ever had that kind of experience? Because it will deepen your faith. We're so deeply troubled that Jesus is truly all we have, and then we discover he's really all we needed. Ethicist John Cavanaugh visits Mother Teresa. And he went there to seek advice on how he should spend the rest of his life. When she asked him what he wanted her to pray for, Cavanaugh already had his answer. So he said, pray that I have clarity. Mother Teresa smiled and said, no. <laughs> I won't do that. She goes on. Clarity is the last thing you are clinging to and you must let go of. Kavanaugh responded, Mother Teresa, you always seem to have such clarity. This time she laughed. I have never had clarity, but I always had trust. So I will pray that you learn to trust. I think I'm not leading you astray when I say trust is the only way to survive being punched by life. (laughs) If we resist, we try to control current circumstances and the outcome. And when we realize we really can't control, guess what happens? We start to resent God and anything and everything and everyone attached 
to what we cannot control. We see life as unfair. But if we can learn to trust when it feels more natural to control, we will become resilient, optimistic about the future, even though we can't see it. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting any of this is easy, nor am I suggesting I've graduated from this class. What I am suggesting is maybe this is a great time for the alive community to begin to grow out of our malaise as believers and into something life-giving, into the arms of Jesus. And when we weather the storms or react to the trials as a people who has this deep awareness that we have been called according to God's purpose and predestined to grow into the likeness of Jesus. Once again, I'm not asking you to take my word for this. I'm just saying let's allow Scripture to challenge us again. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance. And he chose them to become like Jesus. He's talking about you. He's talking about you. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm supposed to become like Jesus? <laughs> yeah. But I'm one of the most messed up. Yeah, you probably are. But it's never about you. It's about your trust in him. James, half-brother Jesus, writes it this way. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, spiritually growing, not lacking anything. Not sidestepping must finish its work, not avoiding, persevering. What if this season of feeling punched, this trial of many kinds is actually God giving you an opportunity to learn to trust him at a deeper level? What if God is actually trying to teach us a lesson in trust? Why? Because God desires a deeper, more intimate relationship with us. Maybe your crisis has an intentionality to it. And it has nothing to do with resolving the crisis. What if every crisis we go through is actually a lesson in spiritual maturity? Lean into trust. Lean into trust. Release your control. Trust. And then let's watch what God will do. And when I forget to trust, remind me. And I'll remind you. Would you bow your heads with me? I didn't do this in the first service. I actually didn't feel prompt to do it. I do feel it in this service. It occurs to me that for some of you, your issue of trust actually is that you've never actually received Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You're still about image management, impression management. You look really good. 
but you've never opened your heart to Jesus. And if that's you, could I encourage you to begin that relationship right now? It's your first step of trust. Maybe circumstances are such a place in your life. Man, you just, you just, it's time. You made a mess of things or you're afraid or, could I encourage you to trust God for your salvation? To be your Lord and Savior? This is the beginning of a relationship where you ask him to be part of your life. And from this point forward, it's a constant growth thing. But you've got to invite him in. He won't kick open the door of your life. You invite him in. So if you want to do that, use your own words. But Lord, I invite you into my heart and life. I need you in my life. Forgive me for sin. All the things that I've made a mess out of. Show me a better way. If you make that decision, we're going to do some baptisms here in a couple weeks, and we'd love to have you be part of those. It's the where you tell the community, Jesus has changed my heart. Lord, would you care for those in this room who are going through their crisis right now, wondering why, fearful, filled with doubt? Would you call us all to that deeper level of trust so that we might change? be more like you. In your name, amen.